Uh, we are in the parables. This is, uh, we have three weeks left, including today. Parables of Jesus, where we're just leaning forward and we're asking God to give us ears to hear what Jesus said back then and there and how it can apply to us here and now. Of course, every parable uh, basically demands a response, gives us opportunity to reflect and repent and then respond. So today, uh, the, the big idea is the grace paradigm. We're gonna lean into the grace paradigm. Now, just a quick um, kind of practice that I like when approaching the scriptures. So the Bible's big, as you may know, if you've ever picked it up, 66 books in that thing, and it can be overwhelming, especially if you're brand new to the scriptures, or maybe it's grown wearisome or boring to you. Uh, one thing I like to do, I'll share with you, is to practice handwriting a text double-spaced. So in the midst of all this technology and all these screens that we have all around us, sometimes it's good to just pen to paper, slow down, let the text just wash over you. So I just submit that to you if you're struggling to engage. And these parables are, most of them are small enough that you can do that without your hand getting a cramp. So that's good. So all of these parables are leading uh, us to, to live out the big ideas that Jesus uh, lived and died for. So in, at the end of Matthew uh, 28, 18 to 20 is the Great Commission where he says, uh, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, so therefore, in light of all of this, all that you've seen and heard and watched, and my death, my resurrection, is, is now to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. Um, and we, uh, we want to be a people who respond to the word of God. And uh, we have not had a baptism celebration yet as a merged church plant. So we are looking forward to hopefully the, the Sunday right after Labor Day to, to uh, seeing who among us is responding to the message of Christ and wants to make public declaration of that through the waters of baptism. So keep that in mind. And of course, the, the great commandment that Jesus uh, reiterates in his teaching and ministry that he takes even from the Old Testament, Matthew 22, 37, when he's asked about the greatest commandment, he said it's to love the Lord your God with everything, your whole heart, soul, strength, mind, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. So everything that we talk about and engage with here at our church is to that end, to love God and love neighbor. It's all about relationships. So let me pray for us one more time and we'll, and we'll open up to Luke uh, chapter seven and actually focus on a story that has a small parable right in the middle. So as we uh, pray together, close your eyes. Lord, please lead us, guide us this morning. First, I'd ask you all, quickly remember a time that you felt close to God this week. And then give thanks to God for that moment. Now, as you think back on these last few days and we're, we're engaging with our Heavenly Father, what would have been the highs and what have been the lows of your week? As Dave already prayed, is what, what are you bringing into the room this morning. 
And I would invite you all to speak to God of all that you've remembered from this last week. And as you do that, and maybe it's an awareness of your lack of connection with him, and that's okay. I invite you to become more aware of where and how God has been alongside you in all of this. And as we look forward to these next 30 minutes together, why don't you ask God, what would you most want for me as we move forward this morning? Father, this morning we gather around to hear Jesus, your son. We want ears to hear and hearts to receive and courage to live out of grace. Amen. So Luke 7, let's, let's take a look at this story here. So when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, Jesus went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. So already, tension begins to mount in this story. You may not see it, but we have no formal greeting, none of the customary greeting and hospitality and welcome given to Jesus. Jesus comes in, and he's not given any of that, and then he just takes his place reclining, chilling, basically, at the table. So when someone walks into our house, right, I mean, what's the, what's the customary Kansas greeting? Hey, let me get you something to drink. Let me take your, your coat. Let me show you around the house. Like, you're, you're, you're all in on that hospitality, right? And that's what should have happened here. If you read uh, Genesis 18, 1 to 8, you'll see the, a, a perfect description of what that, that Jewish or Middle Eastern hospitality should have looked like when the Lord shows up and Abraham greets him and washes their feet and brings him food and drink and just like very much a warm, warm welcome. Jesus doesn't get any of this and that's very important to our story. Nevertheless, Jesus, although he's only probably a 30 years old or so, uh, hardly the youngest person in the room, he's in a room full of Pharisees, religious leaders, Last week, Pastor Sarah talked about um, how Jesus' disciples didn't make the cut, right, in their academics. But this guy, this Pharisee, he made the cut. He was a religious leader. He was a, probably an academic. He knew what he was doing. But nevertheless, he slights Jesus. But Jesus is relaxed. You ever notice that about Jesus? Always looking for that opportunity to rest, relax. He's always kind of chill here at that, that table reclining in the boat when there's a storm, looking for that opportunity to rest and be with his father in the wilderness. So that's Jesus. So the plot has already thickened. But we read next, a woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Anyone have an idea what a sinful woman is code for in the New Testament? Likely a prostitute, the, the oldest profession in the books. So think about this, this, this scene here. You got these religious leaders. 
And these, the, their, their homes would have uh, had kind of an opening to the streets and the riffraff and the, the, the poor, they could come in and sit on the outskirts of that room and wait while the, the formal meal happens. And then out of the goodness of the heart, the host would make a big show of their generosity and they would throw the scraps to the poor, right? And so that, that part's not super shocking, the fact that she shows up. But think about this, okay? This woman who is known to have a sinful life, hears that Jesus is showing up at this guy. We learn his name is Simon. He's gonna eat there, so she shows up. Talk about courage with an alabaster jar of perfume, <clears throat> likely her whole, um, her whole life savings. It says, as she stood behind him, at his feet, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Think about this scene. First of all, I can't imagine this happening today in our culture, in our overly sexualized culture. I can't imagine being at a life group environment, a group environment. You know, we have small groups that meet throughout the week, and we're all just sitting there. And then a prostitute walks in and we're just, I'm just hanging out and she lets her hair down and weeps on my feet and begins to wash my feet with her hair. I mean, even in our culture, that would feel very inappropriate, right? I, I'd probably like, not that I'm Jesus, but in this story, <laughs> you put yourself in those shoes, like, uh, excuse me, like, Let's talk. What do you need? Can I help connect you with the church? Do you need some resources? But let's stop doing that, making me very uncomfortable. Such an intimate interaction. Uh, I mean, the, the most intimate interaction that I can think of in the scriptures as I've really pondered this, especially in their culture. And she is weeping over Jesus. And if you really, if you think about this, she is likely uh, weeping because he has been publicly humiliated and shamed. And she knows who he is. I'm gonna make the case as we go that she walks in the room a forgiven woman who is already beginning to understand her new identity in Christ. And that's what compels her to have the courage to come in. She just wants to be with Jesus despite the others who are gathered close to Jesus. Uh, that, that may not want to welcome her. So let's see how this, how this interaction goes, okay? We got the Pharisees, we got all the guests, we got Jesus, we got the prostitute, the sinful woman, wiping Jesus' feet. When the Pharisee who invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, if he were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, everyone in that room knew exactly what type of woman this was. So this is another one of those classic tests that this Pharisee and his little entourage has set up to test Jesus. And he hasn't articulated this, he's just internally saying it, but everyone's thinking it. How could Jesus allow this woman to do this to him. Let's think a little bit more about the Jewish view of women at the time. 
And so this Pharisee, he, he would have been well-versed in the scriptures. We've already said he, he excelled in his academics. That's why he had the role of Pharisee. Um, there's, a, there's a verse in John 8, a couple verses in 5 to 6, uh, when they bring the woman who is caught in adultery at the feet of Jesus and they're ready to stone her. And then it's another trap. And they say, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? So there, there, there's, a, there's a framework of, of justice for this sexual impropriety. And so their, their, their whole view is to trap Jesus, to trap people, uh, to, to condemn them based on the law. And actually the view of women in Jewish uh, religious culture had gotten worse after the, New Te- the Old Testament kind of wrapped up. There's a guy named Ben Sirach. He's a Jewish scribe who wrote 200 years prior to Jesus' ministry. And this is what he says in his writing, Sirach, uh, chapter 42, 12 to 14. Not scripture, just an, a, a Jewish leader's writing 200 years before Jesus' ministry. It says, do not sit down with the women for moth comes out of clothes and a woman's spite out of a woman. A man's spite is preferable to a woman's kindness. Women give rise to shame and reproach. So that's the cultural milieu or the the environment that this is happening in, in this religious leader's home. And no wonder the Old Testament talks about the the religious leaders as these shepherds who have, have slaughtered the sheep. They've not protected the sheep at all. This man is supposed to represent God and, and, and open the scriptures and show people his grace and mercy, but yet he wants to condemn. But nevertheless, the woman kept moving close to Jesus despite those around him. And that, that might be a good message for some of us who are struggling. We, we want to connect with Christ, but we're kind of tired of the people that are gathered around him. Keep pressing in, have the courage to move towards Jesus. It says, Jesus answered him. It's interesting that a lot of times people ask Jesus questions and he does not answer them. And he'll just go off and tell a story or something. But Simon's not even asking him a question. He's just thinking. And yet Jesus decides to answer him. He says, Simon, I have something to tell you. I wonder what Simon's thinking right then and there. Tell me, teacher. He said, and here's our parable. Simple, yet profound. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now, Simon, which one will love him more? Simple, yet profound. A couple weeks ago, Dave uh, shared with us the value of a denarii in his teaching. It's about the the value of one day of skilled labor. So a year and a half of wages, 500 denarii, one guy owes. The other owes about a month and a half, right? So you can imagine that debt. I mean, some of us owe like 30 years on a house, right? So I think we can imagine owing some debt. But this generous moneylender forgives both of them. Who's throwing the bigger party? 
So if you pay off the laptop at Best Buy, or you pay off your house, which one warrants a bigger party? Um, you call up Dave Ramsey, he'll throw a party for you. Simple, yet profound. So Simon, as he sits there, he replies, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus like, you're good, you're good, man. You've got it, you have judged correctly. A little tongue in cheek there, right? You have judged the situation correctly. But does Simon see his debt? Beware if you can't see your own debt, how messed up you are. As I was thinking about this story, and I, and I, I preached on the parable of the prodigal son uh, several weeks ago, there's a lot of similarities here where you have the younger son who's, who's lived this sinful lifestyle, and then you have the older son who's like the Pharisee outside the party who can't see his issue, right? It's the same ideas over and over again. And as I shared back then, I share now, I'm the one who, like Simon, struggles at times to see how much my debt has been forgiven. Sometimes in conversation with my wife, I mentioned we've almost been married 17 years, and uh, there's things that I'm, I would like to learn a little bit more. She's trying to help me see how egregious my behavior is. She's just explaining it over and over again. Like, do you see that? And I'm like, I, I just, I'm trying. I just, I, I don't see it. And to the extent that I can't see my fault or my blame or my, my lack of relational intimacy, that's the extent that I'm not going to respond uh, towards relational intimacy, right? So I need to be able to see my own indebtedness and how that's been forgiven to move towards a loving response. So simple parable. I think even our kids would get this if you just explain the parable to them. But to get it and live it out. Story's not over. So it says, Jesus turned toward the woman. You can remember what's, what's happening here. She is weeping over Christ. One of the most intimate things that can be occurring, her hair is down. She's wiping his feet. He turns toward the woman, but says to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you judge this woman correctly? Do you see her? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, customary kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume, perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. The NIV says, uh, as her great love has shown. And this is a super important part of this, this passage here. So most translations uh, will translate it something like this. And this is, this is from ESV or actually uh, NIV prior to 2011, where it'll say, uh, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven for she loved much. And it makes you think that... Um, her sins are forgiven because of her love, right? That reading can almost make you think that 
She's uh, done something to warrant forgiveness. That is, a, uh, that is a poor, poor translation, poor, poor way to understand this. This woman walked into this room forgiven and her actions are in response to the grace of Christ. That is so important to get this morning. And so this is one of the reasons, uh, NIV 2011 on, for the win, as her great love has shown, has demonstrated. Her actions are a demonstration of her receiving grace initiated by Christ. And that is so, so important. Let's think a little more on Simon, this Pharisee, this uh, religious leader who's, who's here in, this, in the midst of this story. Simon had opportunities to get grace. He had, he had ample opportunities. He knew the scriptures way better than the sinful woman. So he would have known Hosea 6.6. 6. And if you need something to meditate on this week or just to, to chew on, Hosea 6.6, 6, where God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. And the whole story of Hosea is this story where God calls Hosea to marry a prostitute named Gomer, Gomer to demonstrate his loving kindness, his relentless uh, grace and mercy over and over and over again. So if you want a reflection from the Old Testament, about the initiating grace of God. Hosea is a great story, and it's one that, that Jesus riffs on in his ministry. There's actually a time, another story, when Jesus is hanging out with some tax collectors, with Matthew and some other sinners, and uh, the Pharisees and religious leaders hear about it, and so they're like, why, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus hears it this time, he says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. People think they're good to go, but it's the sick. It's not the person with, with, with cancer but w is in denial and refusing treatment. I mean, what are we going to do with that? It's the person who's acknowledged the depth of their sickness. That's why he's there. He's trying to help those who know they're sick. And then he says, go and learn what this means. So this is what he tells the religious leaders, and he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. Go and learn what this means, Simon. I desire mercy not your religious show, not sacrifice. I've come to call not the righteous, the self-proclaimed righteous, but sinners. So one way Jesus could have responded, and this is taken uh, from Kenneth Bailey, uh, an author who, who, whom I love in his book, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. Jesus could have said, Simon, I'm a Middle Easterner just like you. I don't have to explain to you your duty to your guest. And you've called me teacher at your invitation, I entered your house and I became your guest. Yet you refuse to notice this woman whom you see as no more than a sinner and you expect me to do the same. But can't you see, Simon? She is making up for your inexcusable failures as a host. And if I'm to avoid sinners, then I'll be obliged to avoid you. But he doesn't do that. Jesus stays the course with Simon. Actually, what a gracious way to interact with Simon, to give Simon an opportunity to reflect and then repent. I'm not sure why Simon's named in this story and the woman is not. I mean, you can read commentaries on it. There's probably speculation. There's no clarity. 
What I would like to think is that Simon later comes to faith in Christ and becomes a well-known leader in the church. I don't know. I don't, that's speculation. One day we'll find out. But in fact, you know, Luke, as he compiles uh, his account here in Luke, and then he compiles Acts, these stories, uh, these, were, these were given to him by eyewitnesses. And how cool would it be if Simon, he was like, yeah, you can go ahead and include that story. I look like a complete, you know. But yeah, include it, because I want people to know about the grace of Jesus for all, for the so-called sinful woman and the so-called righteous leadership or religious leadership. Later, Paul makes this, this idea of God's initiating grace and then our response even more explicit. Romans 5.8 says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And in Ephesians 1 Verse seven, we read, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. So Jesus has paid the penalty uh, to, to cover the sins of this woman. Everything that she's done, everything that the townspeople talk about, all the shame and, and humility that she carries in there, he paid the price for that. He also paid the price for Simon's hidden sin, his attitudes of the heart, the things that were a little bit trickier to get to that weren't right on the, the uh, cuff. So this woman, think about this. She doesn't utter a single word in this story. Yet her actions speak volumes. Yet Jesus commends the power of her faith. What's the content of the wordless faith that he perceives and praises? With Paul, faith for Jesus is composed of, yes, intellectual assent, that, that the evangelical church is kind of like really leaned on, the intellectual assent of believing the right things, but also a daily walk of trust and a response in obedience. Biblical faith is never merely something we think, it's also something we do. So she says nothing but acts in confirmation of her confidence that Jesus is the appropriate recipient of her thanks for forgiveness received. She is so content worshiping Christ, even in the midst of all that brokenness around her. Think, think about how the scriptures had been weaponized against her through her life, likely. Like, the, it would probably be hard for her to read the scriptures under the leadership of these religious folks, right? But yet she is at peace, content at the feet of Jesus because she knows who he is and she's beginning to understand who she is, right? So let's dig just a little bit into the, these two paradigms, the paradigm of law that Simon presumably is functioning under, and the paradigm of grace that this woman has now discovered. So this might get a little tedious. If you like taking notes, this is all online, so you don't have to jot it down. Okay, so view of the law. In the, in the uh, law paradigm, 
The law is a set of detailed obligations I gotta keep to be okay with God and to feel okay with myself. It initiates rule keeping. Careful uh, rules are the goal, right? Keeping the rules are the goal. And Tim Keller, on a recent Facebook post, he said, careful obedience to God's law often serves as a strategy for rebelling against God. If I've, if I've checked my lists, I'm done for the day, right? I mean, that's, that's what we like to do. I, I, go to, I go to the office, if I'm paid sal- salary, knock everything off and then I'm done, right? But grace is uh, the view of laws. It's, it's the underlying principles of God's design for human flour- flourishing which God is moving me towards slowly over time. And it responds to forgiveness to grow. And relationships are the goal. God gave the law because there's break in relationship and he's trying to begin to show us how to live again. But not to make us right with him. The view of the self under the law, I can do it on my own. I have what it takes to knock this thing out. Under grace, the view is I can't do it on my own, but I can experience significant change. As Dallas Willard has famously said, and and we've quoted it here a few times, I know Josh has, grace is not opposed to effort, but it is opposed to earning. And earning is the attitude, like I'm doing this thing to earn something from God, but effort is an action, right? To move towards intimacy and relationship. Under the law, the key to growth is self-discipline or understanding specific things, secret knowledge or specific experiences. Whereas in the grace paradigm, it's collaboration with the spirit. There's a process, not quick fixes. And this woman who had lived this sinful life, I don't, I don't know if her, how her story moved from here when Jesus says, you are forgiven, go in peace. Like, did she live perfectly from that point forward? doubtful, but she was marked by the gospel and could begin to grow. The mental focus in the law paradigm is is duty. Just try harder. When I fail, just keep going, keep trying. Whereas the mental focus in the grace paradigm is identification with Christ. A few more things here. Uh, Reaction to failure So if and when, so um, yeah, it's not if I fail, it's when I fail. Under the law paradigm, there's surprise, there's distress, I can't believe it. And then rationalization, minimization, blame shifting, that goes all the way back to the fall. When God's talking to, to Adam and what'd you do? He's like, well, the woman that you gave me, so he quickly blame shifts to God and to the woman. And under a law paradigm, that's what has to happen, right? And then you vow to do better to repeat that process. But under the grace paradigm, when you fail, you're not surprised, right? You're like, actually, it's probably much worse than I realize. Because as I clean these things up, then God takes the gospel even deeper to those refined sins, the stuff that you guys can't quite see, but is down there. He's moving me towards maturity. Confidence of God's acceptance, return to active dependence. That's what repentance is. And then the reaction to success, when you feel like you're doing well, right? Under the law, it moves towards pride and intolerance of others. 
Have you ever uh, gotten really excited about a spiritual discipline, like you know, fasting or reading the Bible, and you keep that discipline for 24 hours, and then all of a sudden you look around at people and you're like, I can't believe you guys. But you've been just doing it for like 24 hours. Maybe I'm the only one that had that experience. You know, I'm showing my cards here. These guys can't even read the Bible, and then you fail like the next day. But anyways, uh, but under, the, under grace, you're humbly grateful for any success you experience. You're able to still empathize with those who are failing. They don't feel you lording over them your own growth or success, and you see that continued need for growth. And then finally, the end result under the law, external conformity in, in lots of things, you know, dress codes, language, things that you can see on the exterior, but increasing internal defeat that leads to hypocrisy. So it's like when Jesus said, you know, clean the inside of the cup and the outside will also be clean. But the Pharisees, they looked beautiful on the outside, they were all conforming to one another, but on the interior, what does he say? They were like dead men's bones. There's no good. And they can also lead to growing cynicism or despair if you're not doing so hot, or if you feel like you're knocking it out of the park, to self-righteousness and externalistic comparisons, which is actually self-deception. The tough thing about self-deception is you're usually the last one to know about it, right? So it's a dangerous place to be. Whereas under grace, there's gradual transformation into a person that has some significant victory over sin and a spiritual mindset. Uh, We call it the mind of Christ. It's written about through the scriptures. You become a more loving person and there's really no limit to the growth in your maturity. You don't check a box and say, I'm done for the day. You keep saying What's next? How can I keep going? I'm just responding to this amazing love and forgiveness I've experienced. So Jesus says to her, finally, he turns to her and engages her. Your sins are forgiven. And she she knew that. This is for the other guests. They began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? She says, and then Jesus says to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go live an integrated life. Go experience shalom or peace. So how do we respond to this as we wrap up here? How do we embrace the grace paradigm? So these action steps are paraphrased from uh, the Emotionally Healthy Discipleship book by Pete Scazzaro that last summer, uh, about 25 of us walked through together and uh, we may lean into this, this Emotionally Healthy Discipleship course this fall, so stay tuned for that. But first, make a radical decision. This woman went all in on Jesus. In fact, this alabaster jar, like to be able to use it, there was no little top that you screw off and set aside. You have to break the top off. Like it's all or nothing. She goes all in on Jesus. I think a lot of people, they they have questions and they're kind of teetering on these things, but they want to get all the questions answered or they're they're waiting for some specific experience. But there comes a point where you just need to go all in on Jesus. Make a radical decision. And in many ways, that's what baptism 
represents, where you're saying, I am publicly identifying with Christ. I don't know all the answers, I don't know all the scriptures, I still have issues, but I'm making a decision to go all in on this grace thing from Jesus. Second, we need to grow in feeling our feelings. This woman was not afraid to feel her feelings, right? It, she, she wept over Christ. She was identifying with his pain and suffering in that room as he was publicly humiliated. She was not afraid to feel her feelings. Third, we need to integrate silence into our lives. So you get the sense that this woman in this story, she could just sit at the feet of Jesus for, forever and be completely happy. She didn't have to hustle and bustle and, and keep, keep act, active. She just was wanting to be with Jesus. And you can read another great story a few chapters later in Luke 10, at the end of Luke 10, uh, where it's Mary and Martha. And Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus, uh, just learning from him. And then finally, we need to commune with Jesus. Clicker, okay, there we go. I think one of the challenges we have in the 21st century is we're not physically present with Jesus. That makes our hearts long all the more for when Christ will return, make all things new, and we get to physically commune with Christ. But in the meantime, we need to move towards communion with Jesus. So I'm gonna invite the worship team up and just leave a few reflection statements and a question for you. as we respond through singing. So you feel free to close your eyes and just remember a moment when you've been hit by your need for grace. And if you're really struggling to come up with that moment, um, that, that may be an indication that you're living out of that law paradigm. And as you think about that, then remember a moment where you've experienced grace. Maybe even this morning you, you don't have that. That doesn't come to mind. And this morning is an invitation to respond to the gospel, to Christ, and begin to experience his grace, his forgiveness, his loving kindness. And then the final question, what do you most want to ask God for as you move forward this morning? In light of this story of this woman uh, responding to the grace of Christ, think about how happy she is in relationship with Jesus despite her past. Just joy at the feet of Jesus. What is it you most want to ask God for as you move forward? And then as we sing together, ask him. Father, we've gathered around to hear your son, Jesus. We want ears to hear and hearts to receive and courage to live out of grace. Jesus, we love you. For all that you've done for us, we will pour out our love in response. I pray that this would be our anthem song, Lord Jesus.
all of our affection, our devotion poured out onto your feet. It's in your name we pray this morning. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Tallgrass at the Well. We're building community together by inviting people into the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit tallgrassatthewell.church.